0: Hello, and welcome to the Funds Fanatic Show. My name's Jeremy Gordon, and I'm very pleased to be joined on the podcast today by Schroeder's fund manager, Simon Adler. Simon is part of Schroeder's value investing team, working on several funds which pretty much go hunting for the cheapest companies around the world, including the Schroeder Global Recovery and Schroeder Global Equity Income funds. After a dire decade post-financial crisis into the start of the pandemic, I'm hoping to learn today whether value's inklings of better performance in recent months can lead to a fully fledged renaissance or if the sheer pace of technological change in today's world has changed the game. Simon, welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much for having me. Fantastic. Um, Well, I think first things first, uh, we've seen quite a vicious uh, tech and growth stock sell-off this year, and certainly into the month of uh, May as well. Um, What have you been making of that? Is Is this something you've been expecting for some time? or? Um, I mean, it's always very difficult
1: to know what's going to happen in markets and what's going to happen to shares. But I mean, I think for us, it was reasonably clear that that we'd entered bubble territory in many of these companies. You had profitless tech going up and up and up through 2020 and 2021. Uh, you had valuations reaching levels that were very extreme and had never previously been supported historically. Despite dramatic historical changes in technology that we'd seen, the companies that were leading that in the past had never been able to support the level of valuations companies had got to in the last 18 months or so. So, for us, it was inevitable at some point there would be a a significant pullback. Uh, Timing, that's always, in our view, next to impossible, Uh, but that is what we have
0: now started to see. Okay. Well, I'm sure that's something we'll, we'll come back to. Uh, I thought maybe a good way to frame this conversation, uh, I'm hoping to talk quite a lot about the ins and outs and value investing, was mm. was to ask you how you ended up becoming a value fund manager. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's, it's a bit of an invest, unfashionable investment philosophy in the last decade. Can you tell us a bit about that? Well, un- unfashionable, many of my friends would tell me, is, uh, is
1: my middle name. Um, <laughs> uh, I was caught this weekend wearing those dark glasses that flip up and flip down uh, when you go in and out. Of the sun. Well, I thought it was very cool, actually. They're incredibly convenient. They're great. You can go in and inside and outside very easy. you having to swap your glasses around. So I've always taken a view of I will live my life in a way that I think is the most effective and practical, not in the way that's the most fashionable. And I yeah. think those dark glasses are a great example. Of it, but oh, it's not been a deliberate choice to choose something in some fashion. But there's two reasons fundamentally that I'm a value investor. One is my natural makeup is to try and buy things at big discounts to what they're worth. That's what I've done throughout my life. When, whether I'm buying an apple at the supermarket, whether I'm buying a pair of clothes, which I always do in the sales, I only ever bought closing the Christmas sales and the summer sales for the following year. So I buy my shorts at the end of the summer and I buy my you know, jacket at the end of the winter. So it's my natural makeup to buy things at discounts. Um, you like a bargain in other I, words. I, I do like a bargain. But then when, when you then go and look into stock market history and what works in stock markets, to my delight, actually the evidence is taking that approach in stock markets has been one of the most effective ways of investing over time. So yeah, you'll be familiar with the data, but you know, broadly, if you go back 100 years and you put 10 grand into value, that 10 grand today would be worth over a billion. And that's absolutely smashed the market and growth investing. So for me, it's it's my natural makeup to go bargain hunting and the, the kind of academic uh, data-led evidence, in my view, totally supports value investing. But going into it, you have to acknowledge to, to exactly your question, Jeremy, that it, there are periods where it's very unfashionable and periods where it's very uncomfortable pursuing that approach. And we've clearly been in a decade of that. But uh, th- the evidence is that you just
0: have to keep going through that and and it, and it pays off in the end. Yeah. Now, value investing is evidently looking for uh, stock market bargains, we might say, but perhaps by way of giving us a bit more of an in-depth explanation of exactly what it is and what you do, maybe you can explain, basically, what do you do on the Global Recovery Fund, for example? What's your process?
1: Yes. So we start by effectively screening the markets. We say, here are all the shares in the world. We want to look at broadly the cheapest 20% of them. That's where the kind of genuine evidence comes from that value delivers over a long period of time. It's typically done on the cheapest 20%. So we go scouring the world for the cheapest 20% of shares. We've got some quite clever tools that Means that we get them kind of sent to us in a nice, easy package. We can do it whenever we want to. Press a button, run the screen, get a list of shares in different countries and sectors around the world. But our basic view is that that will encompass and incorporate a huge number of you know what are called value traps, companies that are genuinely cheap for a reason. So then we say, well, let's go and look at the what we think are the seven reasons typically why a share can look cheap on the screen but not recover, and they're things like is the balance sheet good enough? If you've got a shot balance sheet, it's going to be a lot harder to recover. What's the structural threat? You know, if you're making cassettes, that's going to be difficult to, to ever make a profit again or pipes or something that is genuinely going out of fashion. Um, you know, you have to be very careful of those. So we, we asked that question. Yeah, we asked these these seven questions. Some of them are accounting. Some of them are, are balance sheet stresses as I've referred to. Some of them are more structural and qualitative. Then what we say is, well, let's distill all of that into two areas. What's the upside in the shares? How much reward is there for taking on on those risks? And what is the risk? What is the risk of permanently impairing our client's capital with this investment? And then we look at a trade-off. If we think the risks, maximum risk and there's upside of 70% in the shares, we wouldn't buy it not enough upside for the risk. But if we think the risk is minimum risk, a very low chance of permanently losing clients' capital and the upside, 70%, then that's absolutely what we're doing. Effectively, we're looking for asymmetric opportunities. Over time, that has meant that on average, we say no to about 90% of the shares we look at on the screen. So people that say you can't do value investing because you buy value traps and there are loads of value traps in that part of the of the market, we, we've got some sympathy with. Um, but what we try and do is weed out the value traps and just end up with a kind of conviction-based portfolio of what we believe to be the most attractive shares within the value part of the market. And, th- and that's what we do day in, day out, looking and analyzing companies, going through them in detail and trying to make the right judgments.
0: Yeah, and to bear a bit... Uh, uh, bear out a bit more how that process of avoiding value traps works. I mean, can I ask you, say, to pick out maybe one or two of the cheapest companies of the portfolio, companies which the market might be saying, OK, these are value traps, and, and explain you know, why you think there's light at the end of the tunnel there?
1: Yeah so I mean a, a good one to talk about might be Western Union so Western Union is a US listed business that all of us will have seen on street corners you know they are money transfer companies so you can go into a, street corner anywhere, go into a corner shop and say, well, I think uh, I'd like to transfer 200 quid to my relative somewhere else in the world. And you can do that instantaneously, cash to cash. Now, that is a business that has some structural threats. People are moving money digitally and through other methodologies. And the risk is that that is a business which which slowly fades. Now, we've got some sympathy with that. We think it, the, the core business will slowly fade. But what I think people are missing is that actually they're building a very, very big digital business already. It's already a material part of their business. They make as much money out of a digital transfer as they do out of a out of an in-person transfer, physical transfer, and it's growing very, very quickly. And very interestingly, it is not cannibalizing the core business. So they're getting new customers there on the whole. And that's really attractive. And you combine that with a really good balance sheet. They've sold some businesses off, which means they've got you know a, a very, very secure balance sheet. They're returning capital to shareholders, a big dividend yield. So you've got attractive returns today in terms of yield. You've got a good balance sheet and you've got a business that is transitioning over time and we think has a future and the last thing i'd say on on western union is which i think is important is the compliance requirements are very very serious every country in the world has their own compliance requirements and what that means is yeah if you're Facebook or your Google, do you really want to take on the risk of accidentally allowing terrorism finance or, you know, all the things that you don't want to get involved with for transferring money? And Western Union have built a very, very good detailed compliance system, which means that they are trusted by governments and uh, law enforcement agencies around the world not to be having that kind of money funneling through it. And we think that is a significant competitive advantage that's very difficult to for someone else to come onto because you've got Different requirements in every country in the world. So, that's an example of a company where people look at it and they go, that core business is fading, but perhaps overlook the compliance requirements, which is a big barrier to entry, the strength of the balance sheet, and the fact that they're growing their digital business very effectively. So, we think on a five year view, which is on average how long we hold businesses for, that it's going to be a very different business in five years' time and could be one that people regard as an extremely good, high quality business, actually.
0: Yeah, and is that something you, that you you see a lot where there's a core business which might be in structural decline, and people just focus too much that, too much on that, and too much on the negatives?
1: Yeah, yeah, we do see that a lot, and and sometimes, by the way, people are absolutely right to focus focus okay. on that Yeah, you know we we've made a mistake recently on a company where where the market was right in that respect and we were wrong we think so a business called atos which is a, a french business that had a a, a core stru- business that was in big structural decline and a, and a really good set of growing businesses and we thought that the growing businesses would offset the core business and that they'd be able to generate an attractive turnaround on a five-year view what has become clear to us, having bought the shares, is that actually that turnaround is going to be much, much harder. The cost, the exceptional cost of doing it is going to be much higher than we thought. And it's the, the core business is more important than, than we'd probably appreciated. And that's an example of a mistake where we've had to recognize that the structural threat was worse than we thought. And we've unfortunately had to sell the shares having lost 20, 30% of our clients' money on that, which is yeah. very, very regretful and we don't like. So, so sometimes the market is absolutely right. The, the core part of the business has a big structural threat. And on the whole, we think w- w- we do a reasonable job of identifying when that's the case, but we're not going to get it right every time. Atos is an example of that. But where you can find those businesses, an example which has been more successful would be Royal Mail. Everyone looked at the, the, the post business and said, that's declining over time. And we said, yes, that's totally right. But the parcel business was going to grow over time. And it uses broadly the same network. So, You know, with COVID, that was accelerated clearly with passwords, but that's been a very successful investment for us because we were able to say, we'll look through this core structurally threatened business and try and understand how the business is transitioning over time. Yeah. And uh, if you are patient and you are judicious and you are picky, then we think you can make a tremendous amount of return for your clients by mm. getting some of those right. But that's not all, that's not everything we do. There's a portion of our, of our portfolios that have those kind of risks, but we, we try and make sure that's not the entirety, obviously.
0: Okay. And, um, can you tell us a bit more about what metrics you, you look for? You know, what, how do you, how do you say a company's cheap?
1: Yeah, we, we look at a variety of metrics. Our preferred one, well, we screen on a slightly complicated one, which is enterprise value to 10-year average net operating profit after tax. And Effectively, that's because enterprise value includes debt and pensions and things that we want to incorporate. Net operating profit after tax on a 10-year average is a good way of looking at post-tax, post-capex depreciation type costs on a 10-year average, a cyclically adjusted basis. And So that's where the, the, the primary screen we use to screen companies. We do look at other, other metrics as well, but it's also one of our preferred measures to value businesses. To say we put a conservative multiple of uh, what we think the company can earn across a cycle. And we then make lots of adjustments on the enterprise value and then end up with a market cap of what we think the business is worth and what we think the level of upside is. So the basic principle we take is start with that screen and then Make a load of conservative ass- assessments and conservative judgments for the conservative multiple on it, and then if you can get more than enough upside to compensate us for the risks at that point, you know it will be really considered for the portfolio.
0: Yeah, and is that the the what what you described there is that what you'd call pretty classic value investing, or or something a bit different? yeah i think i think it would be described
1: as pretty classic value investing Yeah, value investing is something that had a pretty established definition until 15 20 years ago and then that has become a very broad definition over the last 10 years typically as value has had a less a less successful time people mm. want to remain calling themselves value investors but they've added a quality bias or a growth bias or Uh, other kind of biases to it which for the last 10 years has been the the right thing to do but actually has resulted in star drift and we're one of the very few traditional value investors out there that have have not star drifted and have have stuck to the knitting and delivered to clients what we said we would.
0: Yeah how do you feel when you see um, uh, funds with value in the name which which own stocks like Alphabet uh, with, with Google, you know, that that seems to be a bit of a popular which people try and get into a value <laughs> Uh I,
1: I think each to their own. Each fund their management own. is hard enough without other fund managers, you know, criticising what people do and don't own. But for it us, is, yeah. our very, very firm conviction is that we need to deliver to our clients what we have said we will do. And we are crystal clear with our clients. We've got great clients, by the way that we are in the traditional definition with basically looking at the cheapest 20%, doing lots of work and ending up with a conviction-based portfolio. So people buy our funds to represent the value part of their portfolios. Yeah. And we need to make absolutely sure we deliver them that value part of their portfolios. So as a result, we've been very disciplined and, and not star drifted. Other fund managers that, that may not sell themselves on that basis, then are perfectly within their rights to do whatever, whatever they think is the right judgment.
0: Okay, thanks, Simon. And before we move on, could you just very quickly tell me who, who are your closest colleagues that, that you work with? I think Nick Kirage and, and Kevin Murphy are co-heads of the team, right? Yeah, so we're a team of, of nine investors. Uh, we're a very, very flat
1: structure. We've expanded the team over the last four or five years, counter-cyclically during a period where values had a difficult period and, and Schroeder's deserve huge credit for allowing us to do that. So five, six years ago, we were a team which were all... British, all Schroeder graduates, and all male, which is clearly not diverse enough. Today, we are nine investors, 40% of people have worked outside of Schroeders, 25% are women, 25% were born in emerging markets. So we have improved our diversity. We've clearly got a lot further to go over time. But we're, we're this team of nine investors that work very, very closely together, a very flat structure, all looking at stocks all day long, debating stocks, trying to determine what the right judgment is. We then have three product managers that help us do a lot of the the, the real hard work in terms of yeah, you know, reporting to clients, making presentations for clients, strategic communications, and, and they do a fantastic job of that, which allows us to concentrate on looking at stocks and trying to make the right judgments and building attractive portfolios. So we're okay. we're, we're really lucky to be the team that we're in and we we all like each other and have worked
0: together for, for, for a long period of time. Okay. Well that that's good to hear. Um let, let let's talk about performance a, a little bit. As we've mm. alluded to, most value funds have lagged the market often pretty badly for at least a decade. Without yeah. getting too much into an economics lesson, what's gone wrong and why haven't people, including Schroder's, I mean, you've said discipline's one of your strengths, but why haven't you shown a bit more flexibility to improve returns?
1: Yeah, I mean, there's a, there's a lot of questions in there, and it's, there it's, are. They're, 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 but it's, they're really important questions. So, I mean, the first thing to say is that the perception is that value has been a disaster for the last decade, and we would push back a bit on that. We launched the Global Recovery Fund in 2013, and it's done about 10% per annum after fees since then. If anyone had offered us that in 2013, that's probably we'd have probably bitten their hand off. It's it's done a reasonable job in absolute terms, it but it absolutely has has disappointed in relative terms, and, and and we don't dispute that because the market's done significantly more than that. So I think it's important to to highlight and to remember that in absolute terms, it's done a pretty reasonable job and a job that. On average, is is a, attractive returns. It's just everything else has done better, which you know part of that is the kind of bubble territory I think that we've been in. Yeah. That I, I alluded to at the beginning. So that's the first point. The second point why Schroders not asked us to 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 change and be a bit more flexible, I think because Schroders a understand value. First recovery fund that Schroders launched in nineteen seventies. You know, more than fifty years ago. The current CEO of Schroders, Peter House, and set up the value team the distribution teams at Schroder's really understand value. So they understand that there will be difficult periods, but you have to stick to your knitting to take advantage of when it turns. And and we've done that. And when value has performed better, we've absolutely taken advantage and delivered for our clients at at those points. And that is the final and most important aspect, that our clients have bought us because they want us to be their value part of their portfolio. They don't want us to, to... be more pragmatic, add yeah. quality bias, because they want us to be the value part of their portfolio. They believe in in what we're doing. And our job is to do the best possible job for our clients and to deliver what we said to our clients we would do. So that's what we've been focused on, because traders have supported that. And as a result, when, when value's had its better periods, we've been able to absolutely deliver to our clients.
0: Yeah, I think something else people are, uh, will be interested in is as a value manager, are, are you a hostage to macro fortunes, whether that's interest rates or the oil price or, or, or things like that?
1: Yeah, I mean, it's, it's really interesting that it's, it's become in the last five years very much a value versus growth market. And when interest yeah. rates are doing this when interest rates are doing that, this is what people think value or, or growth will do. If you zoom out and go on a longer term basis, that's not been the case at all. There, there isn't a, a particularly clear-cut evidence that value does well or badly in this or that interest rate environment. If you look at Japan, since interest rates bottomed over the last 30 years, value has actually outperformed there. And finally, if you go back to the 1926, that's as far back as we're able to get really good data. And we say your average holding period is five years. I think most people say that's a reasonable average holding period. What we did is we looked at, if you bought um, value every single month and held it for five years. So January 1926 to January 1931, February, etc., etc. et, cetera, et cetera. So hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of data points. Value outperforms 84% of five-year holding periods in the last basically 100 years, just under. And it outperforms and makes a positive return over five years in 80% of periods. That is an incredible record absolutely incredible and through that period oh and also i'd say every single decade except for the 1920s and the last decade that's been true so it's not a a different period in this period that does well and that period has done well through that period we have had everything stagflation inflation deflation you name it you've had dramatic changes in technology a doubling of life expectancy The rise of China, the rise of Japan, emerging markets doing great, doing less well. There is everything you can conceive of has happened in that period. And yet value has succeeded every decade except the 1920s and the last decade. And it succeeded 84% of the time outperforming the market. We think that's incredible. And we think that it is not hostage to fortune. What it is hostage to is, is patience and people being long term. If you try and time value it is extremely difficult to do. Very few people will effectively do that over, over a number of, of periods. Um, but it is hostage to patience and having that five-year holding period. If if you can have clients that can have that patience, we believe we're able to deliver them fantastic returns, A, through the value premium, and B, through the, the work we do to hopefully enhance that value premium. Yeah. So that's, that's what matters. In any one period, it may... Do better or worse because of this macro, that macro, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. But we think it's much better to zoom out, remove oneself from the macro. What we're doing is bargain hunting, buying cheap companies, and holding them for five years, and on average, that delivers terrific returns.
0: Yeah. Okay. Well, very compelling historical argument about there. I'll just push back on on, on one point. Something mm. that growth investors do argue has changed i mean acknowledging that people often joke that this time it's different are the most dangerous words in yeah. finance people say that um you know c- companies can just keep growing much more quickly for longer now particularly asset like companies where they might have uh, a lot of intellectual property and things like that which are, which are hard to hard to represent on the balance sheet do, do you think that's changed the game at all just the sheer pace with which comp- even massive companies like alphabet can keep growing
1: yeah, I think I think there's two elements to that. So the first one which which I think is worth absolutely nailing is the the price to book issue that, you know, a lot of long-term valuation work to say value does great is based on price to book and price to book is no longer relevant.
0: And just, I would agree that... Can f- we just briefly clarify, price to book there, that, that's the market price of a company compared to the value of the assets on its Correct. balance sheet, right? Exactly. Exactly. And, and the argument
1: is that, you know, if you go back 50 years, 60 years, that was factories, and therefore that's a pretty fair way of valuing businesses. Whereas today, to exactly your point, Jeremy, that how do you value Facebook's platform, that's not on the balance sheet... And therefore, it's very hard to to value on a price to book. And I think we we have a lot of sympathy with that. We think that view has some strength. And as a result, the data I just gave you about the 80% outperforming and making a positive return, what we have done there is we've gone from 1926 to 1951 using price to book data, which is the only data available there. But from 1951 onwards, we've used price to earnings to specifically avoid that issue. So, so we do not think it undermines that data at all. Mm. Secondly, is there an issue that growth companies can be valued more highly today because they're able to grow for longer and with less capital employed? I think that is an extremely dangerous argument. Yes, there is some elements of truth to that, that we do seem to be able to produce bigger businesses quicker than the past. But this time it's different, are the four most dangerous words in investment, said Sir John Templeton. and. It doesn't matter how good a business is, if you put the wrong multiple on it, you lose money. Tesla is doing fantastic things for the world in terms of electric vehicles, but that is still an auto business. That still requires big factories, loads of capital employed, and producing cars. If you put that on the wrong multiple, uh, which I would suggest it is today, uh, substantially on the wrong multiple, doesn't matter all of the issues of the improvements in technology that we have in the world, doesn't matter how great that business is, how fantastic what they're doing is for society. If you pay the wrong price, it doesn't work. And the simple way of comparing that is just look at, you know, we're in the UK, people in the UK are obsessed with buying houses. If you've thought of your dream house, <clears throat> the absolute one that you've always ever wanted, mine's a little thatched boathouse on the Norfolk Broads. It's probably worth 250 grand. If I pay 250 million for that, it doesn't matter how great that boat house is, and it is great, I'm never going to get my money back. And that's the point that it doesn't matter how great the business is, if you just pay the wrong price, it doesn't matter. And that's where I think we are with some of these businesses. So even though they may be able to grow a bit better than previous ones, I think they're at the wrong price.
0: Okay, thanks, Simon. Well, let's talk about the portfolios a little bit more. People sometimes discuss whole markets saying things like the UK is cheap, Japan's cheap, that that kind of thing. Do you subscribe to that kind of idea? And and where is cheap at the moment?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think think there is compelling long-term evidence that if you look at valuation levels for markets, that can... Uh, uh, have a very significant influence on the future returns. So cyclically adjusted price earnings ratio has a a very good track record of determining the subsequent ten year returns. So if you look at the US today it's at a level which is likely to generate very, very poor returns, if not negative returns from today's starting valuation level. whereas if you look at to your examples the UK and Japan, it's likely to deliver pretty attractive returns from its starting valuation levels. So I think you can subscribe to some data, but that's not really how we work. we we say, interesting useful but what we care about is actually the underlying businesses so we then go and do the work on the underlying companies we screen on the underlying companies we don't screen on global uh, regional basis well we screen on a global basis we don't say japan looks cheap let's go and focus only on there we we want to look at cheap companies around the world so we've got some u.s companies a lot less than the most global fund managers um kind of 15 20 of the portfolios in the u.s today and they're you know attractive businesses like western union i talked about earlier <clears throat> but we've got much more <clears throat> excuse me in uk europe and japan where we think you can get outstanding valuations uh, great balance sheets often particularly in japan <clears throat> uh businesses changing their tune particularly in Japan you know we've got dna in the portfolio that yesterday announced they were going to sell half of their nintendo stake that's about 25% of its market cap that is a dramatic change in in attitude um uh, an, an example of that for, and that's happening across japan we're seeing yeah so we we can see attractive shares in every single region in the world but we can see a lot more attractive shares in the uk europe and japan than we can in the us today
0: Okay. Thanks, Simon. And can you give us a little flavor of what else you've been doing in the, in the global portfolios recently? I mean, with, with the start of a rally for value stocks, are you being forced to recycle more capital and find new ideas?
1: Um,
0: I mean, there's, there's always
1: some companies in the portfolio that are doing better than others. So so it's a, almost always you're having to recycle some capital because things do well. Um, it's a nice problem to have. Today, we're seeing actually a a big pipeline of ideas. The pipeline is probably bigger today than at any point since the COVID sell-off in the spring of 2020. Um, So we're working very hard because there's a lot of stocks to look at. So that's attractive. Um, When we look at shares within the portfolio, actually, they they were so cheap that the little rally we've had so far Yeah, isn't really getting loads of them to fair values. So actually, you know, it's a pretty attractive moment where we think the the portfolio is looking attractive and the pipeline's good as well. So that's a nice place to be as a value manager. Yeah. Um, Yeah, the other point I'd make is the move we've had so far in value versus growth, which people are, you know, talking about in quite grand terms. If you look at the data and you look at the charts, it hardly touches the sides on what's happened in the last five years. It barely registers on the charts. The last five years has been so extreme, so much in the favour of growth. What we've seen so far is pretty modest versus what the data would
0: suggest may come. Okay. So that, I mean, that sets up, you know, the, the next five years, the next decade could really be the time for value. We hope so. You, you, you can never know
1: for sure. You, you, you can never know when, you can never know how. What we believe is stick to our netting, stick to the screen, the discipline of, of looking at cheap shares, try and improve the process, try and improve the tools, try and improve ourselves, try and get better at, at, at avoiding value traps, try and get better at portfolio construction. And if we do that, And we're patient and we continue to enjoy the patience of our clients, we think we'll be able to deliver terrific returns um, uh, over over long-term periods um, because we hope we can deliver the value premium. We hope we can do a bit better than that. How that works out in any shorter term period is is very difficult
0: to determine. Okay. Thanks, Simon. Well, let's finish with a little bit of a wild card. You've already mentioned your love of uh... Uh, clothes shopping during the sales, um, but I wonder if there's anything else outside your day to day job, whether that's hobbies or other interests, books you've read, things like that, which have kind of influenced uh, you, you as a fund manager, you as an investor. <clears throat> um, I think
1: everything I do in life, in a sense, feeds into it.
0: You know, m-
1: myself and the whole team read very widely. Whether that's you know Liam Nunn likes to read historical philosophy, <laughs> yeah, you know, Andy Evans reads. <clears throat> you know, very deep books has gone toward himself coding, you know, the, the whole team are, are reading widely and trying to understand the world. Um, and that all has a big influence on us uh, in terms of, you know, developing patience, developing resilience, being long-term trying to improve. You know, I, I, I get great downtime from, uh, you know, going for walks. I've got a family. I support Norwich City. You have to be pretty resilient to support Norwich City. So a bit of stoicism
0: required there.
1: Yeah, yeah, exactly. And, uh, I've done that all my life. So, um, you know, uh, it's, uh, it's pretty tough being a Norwich fan, uh, every other year. <laughs> the other year it's quite good because you get promoted. So, um, yeah you know, I think everything we we do in life we try and apply, we try and make sure that we get downtime um, and refresh ourselves, keep ourselves fresh. This is a long-term business, it's a long-term investment. it's it's something that we'd like to do for a long period of time. We have to make sure we we make sure every aspect of our of our health is in the best place and 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 we're happy and positive, positive. and that's what we okay. try and do.
0: Okay, well th- thanks very much, Simon, for coming on the podcast. Uh, gr- great to talk to you today. A little more about your approach. Great. Thanks, Jeremy. Really enjoyable conversation. Thank you. And the last thing to say is thanks, everyone at home, for listening. And please join us again soon for more Funds Fanatic Show podcasts.